Okay. Well, welcome, uh, Vinay. Great to have you on the Buddhist Geeks show. I've been following you on Twitter for, I don't know, it's been a long time. So great to finally connect and talk. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you do you do interesting work. Thank you. I, I, I'd, I'd say that you do interesting work, but I'd say that'd be an understatement. Um, I, I wanted to mention a few of the things you're into at the moment. And then, of course, we'll jump in and just kind of have a conversation about a number of these things. So um, at the moment, your current major gig that I see you doing, doing a lot of stuff around is you're the CEO of Materium, which is a new project that's recently launched, as I understand it. So um, we've been in development for uh, about two years, and um, 10 days ago, we put product online. So we've actually launched Congrats. the product. We're open for services. Congrats. And you, and you, la- you launched the product. Well, it, this, this gets into a little bit of the detail. Um, so, so let me first mention that. Um, you also ran the launch of the Ethereum project, uh, which was uh, one of the most important crypto projects to launch uh, this decade uh, next to Bitcoin. And um, and I also was kind of familiar with you a little bit before that and really appreciated the way that you were translating all of these sort of crypto, you know, um, programming kind of esoterica into language and, and concepts that, that were pretty understandable for, for the, you know, fairly well-educated layperson. Um, so, so, so you were, I think, pretty critical in getting Ethereum out there in no small part because of the way you were translating for the, for the super geeks to the kind of regular people. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I certainly tried to make this stuff accessible to people um, because I mean, it's very, uh, <clears throat> Sorry, it, it is very, very technical stuff, right? Yes. Blockchains are as complicated as we know how to make technology. Uh, and it's very, very hard for people to relate to like what it means to them personally. It's easy enough to think about it in the abstract. But when we get to that all-important question of like, so how does this affect my life? It's pretty hard to see like over the horizon. You know, even in the probably up until maybe the launch of the iPhone in 2010, people didn't really understand that the internet was going to become a pervasive force in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So here we were with our kind of like, hey, we've got this thing called the internet, and we were trying to talk about what is it going to look like in 10 years when it's fully mature, when it's fully accessible, when all the, you know, difficult user interface work is done and all the rest of that. Um, And for that to work, you have to get the communication down from the abstract really into the particular and the personal. Um, and I'm yeah, I'm glad you think that that was you know useful and successful because it was it was not easy to do and it wasn't clear that we were getting it right at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in retrospect, it seems like uh, y'all did a pretty good damn job on the launch. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, before that, you also um, designed an interesting um, project called the Hexayurt, which um, is a kind of low cost. Um, uh, housing solution that I, I, I saw, I heard about it from Burning Man, but of course that's not what you designed it for. As I understand, this is really more a response to the sort of growing refugee crisis that, that we see in a lot of different countries. Um, and it's a low cost housing solution, which is pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, so I invented the Hexer in 2002 and, you know, conceived that it was going to take 30 years to get from having invented it to large, well, you know, widespread global deployed capacity for handling what I expected at the time to be 300 million climate refugees. 
you know, um, so I've worked pretty hard on climate from a variety of angles, but the main thrust is humanitarian mitigation. Um, so <clears throat> kind of everything that I'm doing in my life is driving towards an underlying goal of, you know, get the uh, deployable capacity to build temporary cities, permanent cities, to absorb the hundreds of millions of people that we expect to be displaced by climate change. Um, and really none of the humanitarian agencies are really thinking at that kind of scale. And certainly none of them have the capability to make 30-year plans. So I've really been, you know, kind of a lone actor in that space with the clear vision of, you know, from 2002, everything in my life is pointed at getting shelter for 300 million people in 30 years. Uh, and we're now 18 years into that. And I think that we are five years behind schedule. Um, but only five years behind schedule. So that's a project that you continue to to work on. So the housing is not enough, right? You need housing. You need critical infrastructure for water and sanitation. I put a good number of years of work into that. Um, you need digital identity because otherwise, how are we going to passport those people? So I've done a bunch of work on digital identity. Uh, you need access to land. And I'm really beginning to get dug into access to land as my kind of current area of focus uh, and then you also need physical asset tracking because these are going to be very very austere environments so we need extremely efficient disposition of physical matter and that's a long uh a large chunk of what i hope to get done with materium okay so materium fits into this larger vision it sounds like in a way like you've been driven by a vision and i, I don't know if you'll appreciate or hate this comparison but it, it reminds me a little of elon musk you know it's kind of having this sort of clear vision of why he's getting into, you know, to business and, and that being sort of the driving force behind, you know, the different projects he engages. And I hear something similar in what you're doing. Is that an accurate uh, way to put it? Um, I mean, the difference is that Elon Musk is really successful, <laughs> right? You know, like he's actually super good at getting this stuff done. Uh, I made a bunch of bad decisions very early on in those processes that have held me back a lot. Uh, and it's only having seen Elon Musk's worked example that's allowed me to course correct. Like, I would not be CEO of a company if I hadn't seen Elon Musk make that work. You know, so it was kind of like, I spent a lot of time trying to avoid capitalism and work in the open source world to solve these problems. And it yes. took me a long time to give up on that as an approach. You know, I Okay, used to that, say, that's interesting. Well, I used to say the cure for capitalism can't be more capitalism. And at this point, nothing else works at all because everything else is basically rotted. So at that point, the only thing that you're left with is any possibility of curing capitalism is more capitalism. Hence, I now run a company. But a, a lot of that was a very conscious course correction of like, look, you know, I put everything I had into this. The results are really not as nearly as good as I hoped, hence the five-year delay. Okay, we've taken over Burning Man, but, you know, the charities are still totally resistant to the hex year. Um, so... There was definitely a sense of having to stop and think and sit back and be like, okay, I'm doing this wrong. He got it right. I got it wrong. I'm going to do this his way now. Here we are. You know, there's something you, you shared on Twitter recently under, uh, and I'll just mention your at leashless folks that want to check you out. And I, I, I really enjoy your tweets. Um, you're, you were talking about, for you, you came around this issue, came to the sort of realization that it was really the industrial revolution revolution that's that's sort of the underlying problem not capitalism per se 
I'm curious if you could say a little bit about that because that had me really start to think differently about about the whole kind of broader um, kind of economic issues at play here. And I've I've been sort of in a I, I don't know if you'd call it an anti-capitalist or just you know becoming disillusioned with capitalism and, and wondering are there viable alternatives. Um, so that that was an interesting thing to hear you say. So lots of people have tried alternatives to capitalism for organizing industrialization. You know, we've seen communism, we've seen socialism, um, we've seen various varieties of capitalism, we've seen several phases of capitalism, but it, it all still fundamentally has this problem, which is that it's extractive at one end and polluting on the other. Yes. And the extractive polluting nature is industrialization. And it seems to me that it doesn't matter how you organize industrialization, with currently available technologies, all forms of industrialization are extractive at one end and polluting on the other. So, you know, I, I just, you know, it's like if you just don't have enough food, it doesn't matter very much how you apportion the food. There are worse ways of doing it, but even if you apportion the food perfectly, you will still have people hungry. So I feel like kind of industrial capitalism is like, it might be a suboptimal way of organizing industrialization, but there is, even if op- industrialization with current technology is optimally organized, it's still going to suck. So gotcha. at that point, you either have to question industrialization and ask whether we could go back to the land. And the short answer is no. And why would you want to? Or we have to push forward and we have to fix the extractive and polluting aspects of capitalism by closing all the loops on our industrial manufacturing and running clean. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's still going to leave you with a bunch of social problems caused by capitalism. But social problems can be fixed with social change. And engineering problems have to be fixed with better technology. And most of what's wrong with capitalism is engineering limits, not social limits. And we get very confused about this. Mm, that's an interesting take. Um, I want to go back even further to before the hexayurt, before you started working on the cli- on the sort of climate issues and re- and and sort of hatching this whole vision. Because part of also what I'm I'm kind of curious to talk to you about is your experience being a, a tantric practitioner mm. and, a, and a hardcore one, you know, it sounds like you spent a good portion of your, of your younger life really being a full-time dedicated yogi, um, which is uncommon uh, and, and even more uncommon to then come out of that and do all of this kind of work. Um, it seems like when people go the yogic route, sometimes they just don't come back. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, you know, if you could share a bit about your journey and I understand you were in a sort of Hindu yogic tradition and yeah. what, what's the story? Um, well, I mean, so the first thing is, believe me, if I'd had any choice, I would never have come back, right? You know, uh, 9-11, basically, you know, after 9-11, the, the message came from my lineage, like, look, guys, you know, there's no point trying to train up another generation of Western gurus to teach this stuff. We've got plenty of people that teach it in India. We need you guys on the front line doing something useful about the state of the world. You know, and that was my guru was very direct. Like, look, everything is different now. Go and do something useful. And I was a bit like, wait, what? And a bit, you know, like I had a set of tech skills. I was a pretty decent engineer. Um, so it was kind of like, okay, fine, I'm gonna go do something. And then, you know, paths synchronistically opened up that put me at the front line and gave me a chance to do to actually do something. And then that's what I did. But it was not, you know, it was not like you know, like when I invented the hexer, for example, I had no prior interest in refugee issues, right? I invented the hexer, and then I realized, okay, 
I could do very large-scale housing with this, and I do know that this climate change thing is real and it's going to be a huge problem. And it was just this thing of like, you know, the pattern formed in my head of like, okay, well, I can see that there is a huge problem and I now have the capability to do something about that problem. I guess this is now my problem. And at that point, there was a sense of kind of getting in harness, like, okay, you know, this is where the karma yoga starts, off we go. Mm. Um, so I should probably explain this in terms of my guru, because, you know, this is a very, you know, I, I'm in a very weird position, but that's because my guru was in a very weird position. And that's because her guru was in a very weird position. So my guru's guru was a guy called Haida Khan Baba. And Haida Khan Baba is a controversial figure because depending on who you ask, he's either a total con man or he was a form of uh, the immortal yogi Babaji, right? The Maha Avatar, the great god of Hindu uh, yoga and meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, he shows up in the 1970s. If you look on YouTube, you can see dozens of hours of him running around on YouTube, you know, in the 70s and 80s, all shot on film, pre video cameras. Um, apparently, he was the guy that told Steve Jobs to go back to America and start a company. I recently discovered this. I find it hard to believe that that's true, but apparently it was the guy. Um, so Haida Khan Baba is a very mysterious and controversial figure. My guru was one of the people that hung out with Haida Khan Baba in the early 70s, came back to America and lived as an American sadhu. So as a little old lady in the 1990s, she trekked around America with basically two duffel bags, and that was everything she owned. She didn't have an apartment. She didn't have permanent followers. Um, she didn't build an ashram. She literally lived stranger to stranger to stranger to stranger, just showing up in different places and solving people's problems for them. Uh, and I kind of fell in behind her as I would travel with her about half the year, maybe a third of the year, and I would basically carry the bags, make the arrangements. You know, when she needed me, I was there, and when she didn't, I was either doing practice or hanging out with my friends. <clears throat> How did you meet her? Um. Uh, friend basically says oh my god you need to meet this woman and dragged me to a new age bookstore in chicago called healing earth resources um and you know i I, when i walk into the room she's talking to somebody else and her back is to me and what i see is this little kind of rotund jewish skinhead dread dressed head to foot in white festooned in um kind of uh like native american style jewelry you know the kind of silver and lapis type thing that they do a lot of Mm. you know wearing a ton of crystals and she turns around and from about 12 feet like literally on site takes one look at me and says oh my god it's you again (laughs) that that sounds like a classic guru meeting story (laughs) oh it was i mean it was it was the grand tradition and, you know, it was kind of like she knew and I knew and we just settled right into it. Like, okay, that's the job. Here we go. Um, and, you know, it was very much like, I mean, up until that point, I'd done a metric shit ton of meditation. Uh, I'd started when I was 14. I was doing more than an hour a day uh, without any external teaching other than a couple of books. I'd hold myself to the point of internal silence. So I no longer had an internal dialogue. There were no words in my head. Um, but I'd gotten stuck in this state where, generally speaking, if you get into the wordless state relatively quickly after that, you become enlightened. Mm. And often that's a matter of minutes or you know hours at most. Days is unusual. In my case, I'd gotten into a persistent wordless state, but I was nowhere near enlightened. Um, and it took her basically 
and it must have been most of five years of kicking me in the head to get me the rest of the way. Um, it was an absolute, I mean, it was a brutal period because, you know, she was from a lineage where like, you know, if somebody dies, that's their karma. What does that mean? Can you uh, say it, more about that? Well, it means that it was acceptable, you know, if in the course of teaching somebody came under so much load that they died, that was considered to be an acceptable thing in the way that she had been trained. Okay, so she she was, would you say harsh? I mean, would you say harsh from a certain perspective or like un, you know, uncompromising or like violent or what? Like, tell, well, tell I mean, me what you mean. You know, she, she would just send me off to do super dangerous things. Like, hey, this person's in real trouble. You know, there's a strong possibility of violence. You're responsible for making sure they come out. Okay, go off and do. Right? Yeah. Or, or like, you know, there was one point where I was desperately short of money and I needed a job. And I went to see her because clearly there was something kind of karmically wrong because I had a great set of tech skills and I couldn't find a job in the 90s in Chicago. Um, and she says, well, you know, your job is to get enlightened. I'm like, okay. And it was very much like, okay, you know, off you go then, right? You've, you've been given your orders. So I decided that that means meditating nine to five, five days a week and treating it like a 40-hour-a-week job. And, mm-hmm. you know, these are the guru's instructions, so this is what you do. And my life completely disintegrates, right? I don't have any money. I can't pay rent. I can hardly buy food. You know, I'm I'm poor to the point where I'm, like, borrowing people's shampoo, kind of poor. Like, you know, mm-hmm. three bucks was like, you know, I could buy shampoo or food. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, her sort of perspective on that was just pretty much like, well, that's your job, right? Enlightenment is going to cost you everything you ever had anyway, so why are you hanging on to any of this shit? And she lived that. It wasn't like she was hanging on to any of that shit. She was a little old lady with no place to live and no money. Mm. And she went place to place to place, you know, just people would take care of her and she would do a little bit of astrology reading to pay for bus tickets. Okay. So she was, I mean, she was a true sadhu in, in that in that sense, like a wandering ascetic. As a little old lady in 90s mm-hmm. America. Can you imagine the spine that that took? I mean, I, I know I know one of my teachers who came back from Asia as a monk, Jack Cornfield, and he didn't make it long in robes here. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, it didn't seem like a very easy to translate, um, you know, praxis. It it was not easy to translate, and she refused to bend. Right, I tried to set her up an ashram in the late nineties, and she just wasn't having it. Like, nope, that's not my job. You know, not doing it. No. Um. So, you know, that that willingness to push it right to the limit, right? Like, if you die, you die. That's your karma. End of story. That sort of stuff is, I think, you know, if you get that stuff wrong, a lot of people get destroyed for no gain. If you get it right, you're still going to lose a few people along the way. Um, and in my case, you know, because... Because I had the absolute guru discipline as far as I could manage it, if she said do it, I did it. And if mm-hmm. it was going to get me killed in the process, so be it. That, I think, minimized the wear and tear in the process. So in that situation, you know, six weeks in, I'm practically homeless, but I'm not quite in the gutter yet. Um, you know, people are yelling at me, but it hasn't come to an eviction. And what happens is that one day I... I, it's a Thursday. I get enlightened. I'm literally sitting in Chicago, and there is a you know prolonged period of total dissolution of identity, 
uh, a bunch of the other kind of signs and signifiers show up at the same time. Um, and then, you know, it's like, okay, that's it. And then I go and see her and she's like, yeah, that's it. You, you have arrived. Very good. Now get out of my hair. Um, uh, that's yeah, more, more or less exactly the conversation. And then the next day I send out a bunch of resumes to various web shops in Chicago uh, I go in for an interview on the Monday. I show up for work because I get the job on the Tuesday. Um, and then, you know, I get the first paycheck and I go and rent an apartment. And then I go to Burning Man and, you know, like kind of the rest is history, right? I come back into a completely new life. And, you know, that sort of transition from practically homeless to, you know, high paid tech job over the course of about three days was very typical of the kind of intensity of lifestyle that her approach produced. Like, you had to be able to roll with the punches, and if you couldn't roll with the punches, that meant you, you were hanging on to something, and you had to let the hell go of that. Because, you know, from her perspective, there was really only God's will, and everything else was temporary illusion. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and she lived at that pitch very successfully. Now, now, you said from her perspective, uh, where, what's your perspective on, on this now? Um, my perspective is that you've got to remember that God is an idiot. Right? Like, you look at the state of the world, and you're going to tell me that somebody with their shit together is running this show? Are you crazy? Um, so, you know, from my perspective, she had seen the tradition at an apex, at a high point, where one of the greatest of all teaching gurus was in the saddle. You know, from my perspective, I got that stuff secondhand from somebody who was magnificent, but was certainly not nearly as magnificent as Haida Khan Baba had been. And then, you know, I look at that as I'm like a third generation photocopy. Like, I can just about make this stuff work most of the time. But, you know, these people were way better at doing this stuff than I am. So, you know, it's a good job that that lineage is continually refreshed from Indian sources because it does not store very well in the West. You know, one of the reasons mm. I don't teach very much is I know how much better at this stuff than I am my guru was. And okay, some of that is age. She'd had 40 more years of practice than I have, 30 years. Um, but the, you know, part of it is also just that, you know, the stuff dilutes relatively quickly, right? The big Indian teaching gurus are where this thing is found in its natural form. If you want it in the natural form, you pretty much have to go and deal with those guys. And I would consider myself to be like the local franchise. Like, yeah, I'm the guy in the white van that will come and install your washing machine. But if you want to go to the factory and see the thing made, you're going to have to go to India and deal with the Himalayan guys. Mm-hmm. And a few of them tour. Like, you know, Yogi Raj Guru Nath Siddhanath um, has blown me on my arse multiple times uh, while maintaining the superficial appearance of being a complete shyster. Um, but you know, you hang around with them long enough and you'll occasionally show up and do the real thing. And the real thing is unbelievable. Um, but most of the time it's packaged in this very easy to ignore, very easy to neglect form. It's so interesting, you know, in the, in the Western Buddhist, um, dialogue, you know, we've been going kind of more and more over the years toward sort of, um, rejecting the kind of guru, um, student model altogether in part because there's just been so many kind of social fail- failures, so many communities that have com- com- completely imploded, so many casualties. Yeah, and absolutely. 
it's interesting to hear you talk about your experience kind of work, working in that Indian lineage and, and how it sounds like in some ways it worked for you. Oh, I mean, it, it 100% worked. But you've got to understand that if you join the guru trip, you are expendable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the Indian sources are completely clear about this, right? Like, this yes. shit will kill you. Right? Yes. It's yes. going to kill you for sure if you don't have a guru. If you do have a guru, you might survive. Right? And your guru, if their guru is good, will protect you. But part of how they'll protect you is they'll make you face your shit in such a dramatic fashion that you no longer fall into it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is a, a level of commitment that in the West is typically only expressed by people that join militaries. Yeah. Military, maybe some like super high level sports, you know, uh, you know, executive level companies, maybe things like that. Yeah. It's, it's full commitment. And the expandability thing is really important, right? Because if you like your life. Well, being a parent, I'd add that in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> being a parent's a really interesting one because you know being a parent you have to keep yourself in pretty decent condition for the future needs of your kids yes right or if you've got multiple kids you're brokering the needs of multiple kids and multiple futures um as a solo practitioner you know if you're if your intention is to become enlightened you have to understand that it will destroy everything not only in your life but in your identity right? It's going to kill you. The only question is whether your body hangs around afterwards or not. Okay. So let's, let's talk, let's go more into that because I I feel like that maybe that's a portal that'll kick us back into the, to the real world stuff, you know, the the big issues that are happening. Um, Because, you know, for, for, for me, and I think we've we've talked a little bit about this on Twitter, I, I I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. And I do feel like, yeah, there is some fundamental death that occurs with awakening. Um, and yet, you know, if you, you are alive after the fact, you know, then, you know, what you're, you know, what my experience is, what you're left with is just the particulars of your life. You know, there's just this, and this ends up being after doing, you know, 10, 20 years of being on a spiritual trip and having all these stupid ideas about what being awakened is and means, then it's like, oh, well, this is, you know, dysfunctional relationships, childhood trauma that's been just sort of ignored and repressed. This is, you know, ch- now ch- a big challenge of like, how do I make a fucking living? Because I've spent the last 10 years, you know, going on retreats constantly and not focusing on building a kind of certain life skills. Um, you know, I-, I imagine that you can relate to probably some of those things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know so quote unquote integration ends up being much harder in a lot of respects than than the actual awakening process for for some so i mean really there is no integration right like if you're gonna get the waking up thing done all the way after you wake up you really are kind of a walking corpse mm-hmm. right like you know I, I have very minimal fear of death I don't really think it's fear. It's like a you know, I have a sense that it would be inconvenient. Um, um, but I'll you know I'll run absolutely colossal risks, really without blinking, because I don't really have anything left to lose. Right? You know, I'm surrounded by the trappings of a company and a bunch of material malarkey that goes with it. Um, but the attachment to that stuff is 
less than the attachment that I would have had to my backpack when I was 28. Right. Okay. That's, that's interesting because, you know, for me, um, you know, I feel like that's one way that enlightenment can be experienced is as a total detachment. And that's the the, the tradition I practice in, frankly, is very similar to that. Mm. But then I know I've noticed too, that there are people who are very awake and they, they seem to emphasize other things like love or like, um, you know, they'll, they'll emphasize service or that there's like a, almost like different templates for awakening and how it can manifest. I mean, this is, I mean, this is not, not nothing new in terms of the Indian tradition. There's mm. a kind of recognition that there are these different kind of paths or enlightenment, enlightenment paths. Um, what do you make of that? Um, I, I think it's, I think it's objectively true, right? I mean, you know, if you, if you take one of the big groups, like say the Hare Krishnas, right? Um, if you do, you know, 30 years of practice in a Hare Krishna environment and then become enlightened as a Hare Krishna teacher, you're yes. going to be a Hare Krishna, mm-hmm. right? You're going to do things the way that they do things because that's the way that you were made, right? Yes. And yes. that cultural continuity and that praxis, like, you know, the person inside of that monkey suit will be, you know, exactly as dead as I am. But the you know the walking corpse that remains will do things in a particular way. It'll have a momentum, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the vehicle in which the emptiness is riding around. Yes, right. So my guru is all about just do your fucking job. Here's the fucking karma yoga. Do the fucking work. So karma yoga really is the emphasis um, in your tradition. I, well, yeah, this is slippery, right? So remember that my my bunch are householders. So if you're mm. a householder, work will continue before and after enlightenment. Yes. Right? But you have to be working in a way that also doesn't make you morally compromised, if you can manage it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know, I once came across a teaching guru that ran, and by the way, I only met the person once before I knew the story, but I once came across a teaching guru that ran a meth and prostitution ring. Wow. Right? on the basis that in that environment they could apply all of the necessary pressures to shear people of their attachments to life, possibly including burying their body in the back garden. Right? Yeah, really seriously, right? And this is the thing about cultural contexts. So if you look at the amount of power that Vajrayana practitioners had over their students in medieval Tibet, it was that kind of power because they were the feudal lords. Mm-hmm. They were the mm-hmm. monarchy, and they had the full power of the state enforcing the will of the lamas. Sure, you know, that's, some, that's true. Right? If some wizard got out of line and had to be you know, beheaded and have the body you know, salted before you put the corpse in the ground, they could do things like that. So, you know, what I'm trying to sort of portray here is that this is not something where you can leave the cultural analysis behind. Although there is some absolute phenomena you might call enlightenment, it just turns out that the only interface between enlightenment and the real world is monkeys, and the attributes that those monkeys have before they get enlightened tend to be the attributes that those monkeys still have after they get enlightened. Right? You know, because the the monkey suit really is not transformed by the enlightenment process, the occupant might correctly understand the relationship between itself and the monkey suit, and the relationship between itself and the world beyond the monkey suit. But at the end of the day, the monkey suit is still there, right? You know, you have 100 kilograms of monkey on day one, and you have 100 kilograms of monkey on day five, 
and in between the monkey gets enlightened, but bloody hell, nobody else is going to be able to tell. Right? Oh, you've suddenly understood everything is exactly the way that it is. Yes, I have understood everything is exactly the way that it is. And what has changed? Nothing. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Oh, I do. <laughs> right? So, you know, a lot of the job of the gurus is basically to beat some sense into the monkeys before they get enlightened, because after they get enlightened, you can't beat sense into them. Hmm. Right? Like actual personal change is extraordinarily difficult after you're enlightened because all the mm. motivation to change goes away. Yeah, oh, that's a great point. Everything is just as it is in the world, is cosmic wonder. I'm exactly as God has made me, and so are you. And maybe one day I'll stop drinking, but probably not. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I start and not drinking, but I started smoking after enlightenment. <laughs> Before that, I was, I was good. Yeah. <laughs> See what I'm saying, right? What one of one of the you know I, I don't teach very much, right? But one of the most profound moments of my life was uh, I wound up sharing an apartment with one of my long haul students, right? Just purely for administrative convenience, they'd gotten a job in London. I had a spare room; it was just easier that way. And you know, the, there was a point where you know pressure was building, and pressure was building, and pressure was building. And one day there's an explosion, right? Like there's definitely a sense of like there's a breakthrough. And the kind of conclusion of that breakthrough is, you know, I, I turn to Sid Unfortunate and say, look, you know, I was a fat slob before I got enlightened and I'm a fat slob today, right? Nothing changes. And, you know, that understanding that, the monkey suit will be pretty much untouched by the enlightenment process, I think has gotten very confused inside of the American tradition because the American tradition is super tied up with notions of self-improvement, perfection, mastery. You know, there's a whole bunch of ladder climbing malarkey and you can make the argument that the higher up that ladder you climb, the more time and energy you have to devote to practice and the more you can take time off to go to retreats and the more you can fly and see gurus and all the rest of that stuff. You can make an argument that you know many of those toys can be turned to active purpose and maybe that's true, maybe it's not, it's arguable. But you cannot make the argument that any amount of climbing of that ladder will result in an enlightened state. Sure. Right, it's just two different directions of action, in the same way that weightlifting will generally not produce enlightenment. You know, at the same time, you know, neither will self improvement. Mm-hmm. You either understand that the entire thing is a farce, or you don't. Um, although I, I will say, I do know a guy that got enlightened from swimming. <laughs> um, he was nice. he, he was breath counting, so he was you know training at a near Olympic level. And his swimming coaches had taught him to count his breaths when he was swimming. And he just got massively into breath counting when he was swimming. So he was breath counting four hours a day right the way through his adolescence and early 20s. And he was just stroke, breath, stroke, breath, stroke, breath, stroke, breath, stroke, breath, stroke, breath. So it essentially became like, you know, a very, very persistent high volume meditation practice. He doesn't, he doesn't know exactly when he became enlightened, but he'd been tromping around as an enlightened being for 30 years without anybody having told him he was enlightened or without any exposure to mysticism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when yeah. I sat down and was like, you know, John, you're enlightened. You know, how did this happen? And, you know, it took a bunch of investigation to figure out that it had been the swimming practice. 
And that, that to me, he's one of the just the most remarkable practitioners I've ever met, because he's completely uncontaminated by the fairy tales about enlightenment. <laughs> right? Super useful. That's really interesting. And yet it's, you know, like the, it's an unusual person that can, you know, that ends up developing that level of samadhi or concentration ability, and then it sort of turns toward whatever it turns toward awakening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. He's, a, he's a remarkable individual. He, but, he's a lucky fucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I, th- I think that this is quite important because it's like, you know, deculting the enlightenment thing is a big job, right? You know, the Tibetan Buddhists arrived, you know, starving, beaten, desperate, and in fear of their lives. And they spent a lot of time telling people what they wanted to hear. You know, you could look at the Asian Buddhists, you know, the kind of Thich Nhat Hanh types. You know, we bombed the metric hell out of their countries. They've seen the worst of what American society has to throw. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're kind of coming over here trying to make peace with us because maybe this will make us less likely to come and murder their next generation. Like, you know, the vast majority of the activity has been motivated. The Indian gurus that came over here, I don't know what percentage of them were total frauds, but I think it was probably more than half because the West was gullible and hungry for stories from, you know, magic swamis, you know, and over they came. So, you know, I think that there is like real structural cultural damage from people that instrumentalized the kind of spiritual situation in the West for their own benefit or for the benefit of their cultures and, you know, stitching that back together again and getting all of that nonsense off the table, I think is a big part of what is actually happening right now, but it really has to be done in a pretty disciplined and conscious way, or we're going to continue to have this enormous cloud of confusion about what constitutes enlightenment. Now, something you've, thanks, thanks for that. Um, Something you've talked about recently and shared a bit around is is also your experience with trauma, and you know uh, at this point I'd say in the you know in the development of the Western Buddhist mindfulness scene, you know trauma informed mindfulness is sort of like trauma sensitive, trauma informed. These are things that are very you know foregrounded at the moment, mm. and you know you spoke from the experience of having kind of done some self-assessment and sort of seen that you you have a, a, a sort of an extreme level of traumatic experience in your background and and seem, seemingly everyone has some amount of of traumatic experience some something that's happened that they just didn't know how to how to deal with at the time mm. um could you talk a bit about that and how that uh, awareness feeds into or relates to the what we're talking about with uh waking up yeah so i think it's worth thinking about this in terms of you know obscurations to consciousness right the whole kind of samskaras thing um so i'm trying to think how to phrase this um so the bottom line is that for most people trauma is a thing that spurs them towards change right Mm -hmm. they want rid of the pain and it turns out that dharmic approaches will free them from the pain eventually, right? You know, good evidence if you do this stuff, eventually you'll get better. 
Um, but the the problem is that the traumas themselves are enormously strong imprints that you have to get rid of if you're going to be able to get enlightened. Right? Like, the level of us that binds onto trauma and is like, right, you know, it's either, you know, pain that people can't get rid of or hatred that they can't get rid of that binds them to these stories. Usually it's hatred. Right? I mean, you know, 80% of the time if I'm working with somebody with trauma, you know, what I'll eventually wind up doing is giving them an iron bar and some shit to break. Because usually they're really good at facing the pain, but they're very bad at facing the anger. Right? But at some point, it's not until you've gotten to the point where you can look at your own trauma and be like, well, shit happens, and understand that your own trauma is kind of insignificant compared to what's happening in the world as a whole. You know, if you can't get through those processes, you're not going to be able to progress past that point because there'll be a chunk of a complex inside of you that keeps telling you this is real and this is important. Right, and at the end of the day, it's not real and it's not important. It's just shit that happened. And you know, I don't mean that in a kind of disassociative way, but you have to come to a position where, you know, as you step over homeless people on your way into Starbucks, you understand that their lives are worse than your past. Hmm. It has to stop feeling like it's some kind of you know special unicorn trauma. Like, oh, this is the worst thing to ever happen to anybody. Oh my god, this is so horrible. That's how it feels to you because at the time that it's happening to you, you're a kid and you're stupid. Right? The vast majority of trauma happens when people are young enough that they are naive and they're arrogant and they're foolish. And those are all natural attributes of childhood. But it means that we build a story around the trauma which is completely distorted mm -hmm. because it happened to a kid and everything that kids think is distorted. That's why we call them kids and we don't give them access to like cars, alcohol, and handguns. Well, here in the South, that, that might be <laughs> questionable. Have you read Revenge of the Mutt People? No. Uh, it's a fantastic article about Scots Irish because my, my mother is Scottish and I grew up in, you know, the kind of like the, the, uh, the Scots version of redneck culture. So, yeah, Revenge of the Mutt People. It's an article about just how dreadful the formative like culture of the Scots Irish is. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's an amazing piece, really good. So the trauma thing. I mean, yeah, I, I mean here, oh, there's just no way around this. Um, the bottom line is that anybody who's got trauma is going to have to deal with their shit before they're getting anywhere on the enlightenment track. You do the meditation. It gives you an enormous ability to sit with the horror show and not flinch. And as you feel all of the old emotions and face all of the things that happened and all the rest of that, you get into a position where it integrates back into being just another life experience. But if you go into this with the idea that there is a kind of healing gift inside of the trauma and all the rest of that stuff, it turns into this kind of fetishization, right? And you know, there have been different waves of things that have gotten fetishized in the Western Enlightenment culture. And, you know, authenticity gets fetishized in a huge way. You mm. know, there's a big fetish about the spiritual teacher should have perfect integrity, all the rest of the stuff. Like um, Reggie Ray, right? This Vajrayana. I, I, I know Reggie. I've, I've, I've practiced his, his methods and not directly with him, but with some of his students. Yeah, I know, I know him well. So I saw the open letter about Reggie Ray, which accused him basically of being a manipulative sociopathic bastard, right? 
It wasn't like he'd raped anybody. It wasn't like he'd bezeled money. It wasn't like he'd pulled a handgun on anyone. It all seemed basically like, wow, this person is really unpleasant. This is very horrible. We've had enough of this. And I was kind of reading this like, what part of Vajra Guru did these people not understand? Hmm. You know, like, Trungpa is pretty much par for the course. If you go back over the history of Vajrayana teachers over the past thousand years we've got documented, Trungpa is probably, you know, two-thirds as bad as they get. But the really heavyweights are so much worse than Trungpa. Yeah. Okay. This is an interesting perspective. I want to. I want to build on what you're saying here because, um, you know, my my actual perspective is a little more. I'd say it's a little more balanced. But I think because you're you're pulling me to one end, I'm just going to go with it. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Roll. Roll. Do it. Do it. Let's you know. Let's get this puppy. You know, sewn open on the table. So so this is something I've been thinking about related to what you're saying. So there's there's this sort of, again, kind of a shock when teachers within these lineages who the lineage is known for being extremely uncomfortable and difficult and painful going back to the Mahasiddhas, you know, in India. Yeah, baby. And then, right. And then there's this sort of shock, like, oh, like, oh my gosh, like Reggie wasn't a nice person. Like, <laughs> yeah, no shit. Right. Like, oh my God, our, our Siddha is acting like a Siddha. Oh dear, what a disaster. And and then you know the other piece is a, it's a it maybe a little bit different reading of trauma because for you know my experience like yes you do have to confront a certain level of kind of selfing around traumatic experiences and patterns to be able to let go of them sufficiently you have but it's a, to, you have you ha- to deal with your shit to some degree but but to me like you there's some shit you cannot still not deal with uh, and and get away with it you know and still kind of be a little bit you know, like, uh, I'm awake and it doesn't matter. Fuck it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I mean, deal with your shit is not that you beat all the panels flat on the car, right? Right, right. Like you have a car crash. Deal with your shit is when you finish the insurance paperwork and they send you the check, right? You know, it's it's the administrative level where the experience gets put into your past rather than you living inside of it all the time that's the dealing with the shit. Right? So, yes. So 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 looking at that and looking at people's actual stories, like look at the lineage of, you know, Reggie's lineage, you know, look at, you know, Chugyam Trungpa's experience, who's what 15 years old, he has this harrowing journey that none of us listening to this podcast, many almost none of us could imagine. Didn't the hot over the, like freeze to death in the Himalayas yeah, or something? Yeah, three hundred people, six months. They're getting shot at. Um, you know, most of them d- probably die. I mean, talk about trauma, like you know, you bet, you bet. your entire country is being destroyed. You know, you're ethnic f- cleansing, genocide, harrowing escape. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're running off over the mountains, and your people are freezing to death on the way. It's as bad as it gets. So that's the start of your journey to the west. And then, you know, and then there's, you know, then he's, he's got this period in Oxford where basically the, his tradition disowns him because he takes off his robes and wants to relate to people, not as a monk, but as a normal person. Yep. And so then you get disowned, <laughs> you completely disowned, gets in a car accident, half his body is paralyzed. He's a, you know, he's a raging alcoholic. No wonder, you know, no wonder all that pain. Yep. Like who wouldn't, yep. Yep. who wouldn't be trying to, 
to drink their way out of that. And, and you know, this is the you know this is kind of the nature of the monkey suit. The monkey suit is pretty fragile. Yes, yes, and 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 totally imperfect, and and yet also brilliant. Trungpa's brilliantly awake. Like there's no question in my mind. Reading his early stuff, having hung out with many of his students at Naropa when I was a student there, it's like the dude was lit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, or more ways than one. And, and then, sorry, go ahead. Oh, please. you know, this is the confusion that we get is that we expect some kind of set of attributes on the monkey suit just because the occupant of the monkey suit is awake. Yes, yes, conflating these things. Yeah, so so I looked, you know, looking at that situation and sort of, you know, and this is something I share in my, my, in my sort of uh, family background. My my grandfather's Palestinian, oh, so wow. he comes comes out comes out of Palestine in forty eight, and you know, I remember a few years ago I was sort of with he and my grandmother, and I was kind of sharing something that was difficult for me, you know, some some trauma, some pain, something, and you know, he's like listening. And then at a certain point he just gets fed up with it. He's like, he's like, this is what you're complaining about. I saw people get shot in the head, right. you know? And like, he, you know, he, uh, he can't really relate to the kinds of challenges and pain that I'm, you know, you know, working with as a person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's like, oh yeah, well that makes sense to me that he can't relate to that because of what, you know, what he experienced with some of these, these Tibetan teachers, you know, their origin story. It's like, why would we expect it to be otherwise? Why would we get so shocked that, you know, his son is then, you know, sleeping with his students and acting out in all these sort of ways that are, you know, you know, fucked up. It's Mm -hmm. like, of course, you know, of course. So part of me, when I look at the trauma sensitive movement and, and I, I see these expectations that are put on teachers, being a teacher myself, you know, come, having some of that background, you know, ethnic cleansing, genocide, still working its way through me. I'm like, mm-hmm. look, there's no fucking way we can be perfect. Like we're, we, like you said, we're, we're monkeys, you know, and we're doing the best we can, many of us, you know, uh, but we're still monkeys. High, highly dentable monkey suit. Like, and you know, I mean, this is frankly the lineage, you know, the Western lineage of Christianity where everybody confuses gurus with Jesus. You know, the perfect son of man, incapable of all sin, God realized, yada, yada. People think that when you say guru, you mean Christ. And frankly, Yogananda is responsible for a lot of this because of that sodding book where he describes Babaji as the Yogi Christ of India. Right? They're trying to build cultural bridges, but what has gone into Western culture is all yoga... Uh, all gurus are, you know, yogi Christs, right? They think that God realization means that you are, you know, in some sense going to be morally flawless in the same way that they think that Jesus was, right? That's the core of the confusion. Yeah, there's a sort of a, a sort of a saint model in some there's, way. There's a saint model, right? And yeah, you know, and sages are different than saints. But it's not only that; even the saints aren't saints. Right, you read oh, of the course. you read the biographies of most Western saints, and they Patriarchies. do all manage of horrific crap before they become saints, and they continue to do horrific crap afterwards. You know, like yes, the the hagiographies are not uh, actual histories; they're not actual histories, right? So, I mean, it, rather than decimating the teacher population by holding them to these unrealistic standards, what we ought to be doing is decimating the guru myth 
right, which is that the guru is directly equivalent to Jesus, and replacing it with a somewhat more realistic model of the guru, which is this individual understands the nature of things, and things are fucked. Right? I mean, that's essentially the noble truths in a nutshell, right? You know, somebody understands the nature of things, things are fucked. If you listen really carefully to what they say, you could get out of the fucked position of things. But you can't take anything with you. You can stop identifying with things. Yeah, you know, you you get out of the position where you're basically, you know, um, you know, it, it's like watching kids holding a funeral for a Barbie doll. You know, it's like they're real upset, but when they realize that it's three hundred grams of plastic, the problem will stop. Okay, so so this is interesting. So 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 with um, kind of uh, one of the perspectives I've so I've worked with Jack Cornfield as I mentioned, and he's like the heart guy. You know, yeah. Jack is a path with heart, wise heart, all these yeah. um, things, and you know, I've I've found that to be a welcome. Um, augmentation to my natural tendency, which I think is more to see things like the way you're talking. Mm. Um, like if I were to just go on my own, that's probably where I would go. Sure. But there's, I found there's something just profoundly um, important about waking up at the heart level as well mm. and sort of being able to feel compassion for other people, even though I know that, that they're, you know, most people are deluded about, you know, what this is and who they are. Even so, like it's especially because of that, you know, there's compassion and that, that kind of compassionate wanting to be useful or to respond to the suffering of the world. Like that, that for me feels like a, it now feels like a real part of the enlightenment package. Mm. Um, and you know, it's interesting because when I hear you describing your path, it's like, if I didn't know anything about your views, I would sort of assume that that's part of what motivates you is compassion. Like otherwise, why, why do all of this stuff? Yeah. I mean, this is a tricky thing, right? So I didn't really give a monkeys about refugees in any particular way until I invented the Hexier and discovered that I had the power to do something about their position. And once I discovered I had the power to do something about their position, I then became morally responsible for doing it. Right. So so you felt more so is it more of a principle-based thing rather than like a personal thing? Like you can sort of feel personally for the person you're stepping over, you know, the homeless person you're stepping over as you go to Starbucks? Well, I mean, the realization and you know this may be generically true for all enlightened beings. It probably is one of the few things which is generalizable. Probably. Um, is the understanding that other people's pain hurts exactly the same way as my pain hurts. Mm. Right? Mm. Mm. You know, I've been homeless. I was never homeless in the sense of I really had no options. Right? But there were times when it was just, you know, things would happen and I'd wind up on the streets for a while. A few weeks here and there. Um, and that was never a particularly big deal because I knew that I had options if I wanted to exercise them. But, you know, if you're young and strong and you've got a tent and a passport, you know, the notion that you're going to roam around without an apartment for a while is kind of fun, right? But it, after a little while with that, you begin to understand how if you didn't have an education and resources and you couldn't go back and do another, you know, Air Force contract, um, you begin to understand how you could get stuck in that position for keeps. 
right? So for me, the veil that separated me from the hardcore career homeless was really quite thin, you know, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at my guru, my guru was technically hardcore homeless. She never slept on the streets because she was a little old lady and she would have died, and people around her stopped that happening. But she certainly wouldn't have blinked twice if that's what had happened to her. See what I'm saying? So I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a way that which you could relate at, at a level that was very close. They don't appear to be a different category or a different species to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've been off on a fundraising tour for Materium, and I've probably talked to five billionaires in the last month face-to-face, often for hours, often about spiritual issues. And, you know, it just turns out that they're lost monkeys with shit tons of money. You know, they haven't actually gotten any kind of fundamental insight into the nature of reality that is producing the wealth. It's just that they are people that made a lot of money. They worked really effectively. But, it, you know, it's not some kind of benediction from um, from above. Um, maybe in one case. But, the you know, the, the thing I'm trying to get to here is that there is a whole bunch of emotional compassion. Oh, we feel the pain of all the people. And generally speaking, those people aren't doing anything. Mm. Right? They're they're they feel a lot of compassion, but they don't do anything. Which is right? arguably something other than compassion if they're not doing something. Well, I mean, it's sort of hard to deal with a lot of the worst things that are happening in the world if you're too emotionally exposed and too emotionally open. Like mm. You know, I mean, I really made my bones in the disaster business working on um, nuclear contingencies, uh, pandemics, civil wars, and genocides. You know, doing really meticulous planning work for, for approaching those kind of scenarios. And if you're really, really open hearted and compassionate, you are going to be totally ineffective doing that kind of work. That's interesting. I, I was talking to Joan Halifax a couple of years ago, and she she cited a interesting kind of counterpoint to that, where uh, I think it was Mathieu Ricard was sort of part of some kind of, you know, they put him under the microscope, whatever, <laughs> studying his brain while they torment him. And uh, I think they, they had him do two scenarios. One was um, just kind of hitting him with image after image of like intense suffering uh-huh. and you know, one situation after another. And, and I think from what I remember, they had him just like feeling empathy for the people. Yeah. And he got, you know, at the end he was like completely drained and wasted and tired and overwhelmed. And then they did the same thing again later, but said, you know, do your compassion practices, generate compassion. Mm-hmm. And he, at the end of that situation, he was energized. He was fine. Yeah. Like he was able to kind of work with the imagery and the pain of it. And it was a different state for him than empathy. So that was an interesting distinction. Like when you're taking on the pain of the other and you're so, you know, you're, you know, you're feeling it as if it's yours, like that kind of identifying with another's pain seems to be different than some, this kind of compassionate you know, transpersonal compassion, which is sort of not shying away from pain and it's, and is responsive to it. Like there's a kind of responsivity, like a, a not pushing away or ignoring or saying, fuck it. But, but at the same time, not getting caught in it, not getting caught up in it. Um, and that was my first, my, one of my first big kind of 
mind-blowing experiences was that it was a kind of experience of like overwhelming suffering like i couldn't imagine the level mm -hmm. of pain in the world and pain of war and you know like like just kind of fathoming that and just being like no there's like no way i can handle all of this and then this compassionate something rose up and it was it was it was a it was a state of heart and mind that could actually hold all of that but it wasn't it, it wasn't me that was doing it it was it that the suffering and the compassion shattered me um completely mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that i kind of go back to again and again because it was so such a formative experience and it's probably because it's such a formative part of the tradition i've practiced in mm. and that for me that feels somehow really important or critical to to this whole awakening thing well i mean everybody needs a response to reality right and the reality that we're in is an enormous number of people suffer largely unnecessarily because they labor under you know political and moral systems that are kind of inherently life-destroying Mm. Right, the vast majority of the world's large structural infrastructure, you know, the big, heavy, underpinning systems of the world, the vast majority of that stuff is enormously to toxic and demonic to deal with. Mm. You know, military drafts, bureaucracies, rape culture, defense spending, you know, the kind of capitalism that produces mass starvation, all the rest of that stuff. You know, this is a bunch of junk, and. You know, to awaken in a world that works that badly is going to hit people super hard. It has to, because if it doesn't hit you super hard, you're not paying attention. Hmm. Right? But then at the same time, there's a question about whether you then become a person that is effectively dealing with those problems, or whether you become a person that talks about dealing with those problems. Okay. Yeah, this is important. So, so you know, I've seen you talking about this recently, and... Um, with respect to this sort of emerging kind of community online, um, the Game B community. Oh yeah, those um, guys. My God, <laughs> what a bunch of jerks! So, so interesting. You know, I, my friend Daniel Thorson. Um, I heard him talking to uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and I, I thought, you know, okay, I, I like some of this language, the game theory stuff. I, you know, it reminded me a lot of. Ken Wilbur, who was a mentor of mine in the mm. early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Wil Wilbur's early work was amazingly important to me. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, the whole later integral thing, I really thought that he'd maybe had a head injury, but the early stuff was absolutely phenomenal. That's the way I feel about Trunkpus stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, I, it was like seeing this scene pop up and seeing the excitement and the idealism, it, it really felt like reliving the whole integral Institute days. Mm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, seeing all the dudes, seeing all the white dudes, you know, kind of flocking to this sort of liberation theology, um, game B mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on the one hand, I'm like, it's great that people are, like these ideas are being picked up by more people, like on one level, cool, maybe this is a good sign. On the other hand, I just, you know, immediately I'm like, uh, like I, I feel like I've been through this mess before and I kind of know yeah. where it goes. And you've been sort of speaking up and out uh, about that movement. And I, I you know, oh, I, mean, I wanted really, to ask you if you could talk about, about the, that. Yeah. I mean, my experience of dealing with those guys had really very little to do with spirituality or consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, 
uh, you know, somebody was advocating for genetically screening for sociopaths and psychopaths, uh, and maybe, you know, like stopping those people from attaining positions of power. And I kind of pointed out rather forcefully, excuse me, this is eugenics. Like, we've been down this path and we don't like where it goes. Would you please knock this shit off? Um, and this, you know, was part of an ongoing debate about things like carbon footprint and slavery footprint. You know, how many slaves do people have working for them? Um, and that was a really intense discussion because, like, they're talking about a win-win society, but nobody's looking at the slaves that are working for them down their supply chain. Mm. Like, it's not a win-win society until it's a win-win for the kid that is currently, you know, literally living in a pit where they mine coltan, you know, 12 hours a day. Mm. Right? I mean, you've seen the pictures of children mining minerals for computer construction in Africa, right? I haven't. Oh, well, it's a, it's a thing, right? It's a real thing, right? Conflict areas where they've got crappy mining infrastructure, they're mining by hand, and, you know, it's children in holes with buckets hauling over up to the surface a bucket at a time for processing into consumer electronics. Mm-hmm. That stuff is really going on. Mm-hmm. You know, very much the same kind of dynamics as things like conflict diamonds. So, you know, tell me it's a win-win when we've solved that problem too, not when we have a bunch of entitled white people that have found a way of being nice to each other. Mm. See what I'm mm. saying? I and do. Once you put the environmental and the social constraints on game B, the vast majority of what they're talking about turns into total horseshit. I can see that. Right? You tell me that we have a win-win society when your slavery footprint is zero and when you emit less than three tons of carbon per year. Because until then, it's just exploitation of people that you can't see. Now, how do you hold the sort of paradox of the sort of individual and the systemic together? You know, um, because you were talking earlier about how we sort of we're in inside in a way these sort of mega systems that are exploitive, and there's obviously things we can do on the sort of personal individual level. Like you, and and I think the two things that you mentioned are in the carbon footprint and the slavery footprint. Like that's they're actual real projects that are kind of focused on on that, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a couple I, projects. Could you mention those? I mean, there are, well, I mean, there are any number of carbon footprint calculators, and there are, uh, there's a lot of resources around the whole slavery footprint concept, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Both of these are imperfect ways of talking about how much violence we do to the environment and to other humans by our existence. By participating in the things that everyone participates in. Right. Right, and this is the kind of the ahimsa thing. If you're going to live without harming people, you have to live without harming people. Right now, yes, in this time and place, there are limits to how far we can go. Right, I, for example, eat meat. I eat meat because I got royally screwed up uh, living at altitude and then dealing with a chronic lung infection, and it left my metabolism kind of broken in a way that eating meat seems to partially stabilize. Possibly, I'll eventually figure out other ways of solving that problem. But Mm -hmm. it's not like I am deluding myself about what I'm doing when I eat meat, Mm -hmm. right? I am very well aware that bacon equals pig. Mm -hmm. And I am not particularly happy that my metabolism is somewhat dependent on that. But if I was a sodding tiger, I'd be having to kill the damn thing with my own teeth. See what I'm saying? Sure. Right? We owe it to ourselves and to the world to know what we are doing. Mm Mm-hmm. 
if we pretend that we are not doing what we are doing, we are going to have a problem. You know, and this is where the Tantra comes in, right? Yes. Um, j- just very briefly on Tantra, um, you know, you, you, you know the sort of Hindu rubric, the chakratic system, right? Root chakra, second chakra, third chakra, yada, yada. Mm. So although that's not an exact map for the reality of those practices and so on, you can loosely think of it as root chakra tantra is about building a relationship with the guru and facing death, right? Because from the guru comes security. You throw yourself on the mercy of the guru, the guru will protect you, or you think bloody better try. Um, And frankly, if they're a lineage guru, they should succeed, or the lineage is broken. So there should be protection from the guru, um, and there is also the facing of your own mortality, which is the thing the guru cannot protect you from, right? The monkey suit is going to go. So you better be damn sure that you're not going to be overly traumatized by the going of the monkey suit, which means you better understand who you are and who the monkey suit is. So <clears throat> that process at the root chakra is being performed by almost nobody in the West with an interest in Tantra. Everybody who talks Tantra talks about second chakra Tantra, which surely enough is what comes after first chakra Tantra, but the sexual practices do absolutely nothing unless you've gotten the root chakra stabilization done first. Because rather than freeing people from addiction to the senses, all they do is reinforce addiction to the senses. Right? And that structural error in the way that Tantra has been brought across to the West has resulted in enormous numbers of practitioners who run around thinking that they're tantricas because they've done a bunch of hatha yoga and had a bunch of weird sex. And, you know, it's not until you get the relationship with the guru correct to generate the safety and until you get the, you know, full understanding of your own mortality correct to deal with, you know, the kind of, uh, well, I mean, the core business of what it is to be enlightened. It's not until that stuff is done that the sexual practices do anything at all. They're completely without merit until that work is done, and nobody is doing it. Right? Um, then you get to the tantra of the third chakra, which is basically power and social relations, and that stuff is four times as complicated and as long as the sexual practices are. And this is where you get into right livelihood and karma yoga, you know, mm-hmm. familial responsibility, the interface between freedom and responsibility. All mm-hmm. of that stuff comes up at that level. And it's not until that stuff is done that you get anywhere near the heart chakra territory, mm-hmm. right? I mean, building the foundation of Tantra so that you can manifest the spiritual heart, the spiritual heart is built on top of a foundation of absolute power. Because otherwise, the spiritual heart breaks because you want to help people, but you don't have the power to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so... That notion that this thing is a platform which is built up a layer at a time, first the root, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, that concept has gotten really washed out of the culture around Tantra. I don't think, I can't point to a single Western teacher of Tantra that is working in anything resembling the necessary, like, methodical way that you have to do if you're going to get stable realization. Okay. And then how does that, for you, how does that kind of connect to the sort of idealism of this sort of meta-modern kind of movement? I mean, it seems like there's a kind of 
a head chakra thing going on, but maybe a lack of all the other chakras beneath it? No, as far as I can tell, it's just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, every time I ask somebody what metamodernism is, it either sounds like they've rediscovered Robert Anton Wilson, but they're couching it all in, you know, like Western academic discourse type language. Um, or it sounds like they're just a bunch of gibbons who found some new song to chirp along to. Right? I, I just don't see any evidence that there is a there there. It seems pretty clear, <laughs> your position. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm willing to have somebody explain it to me, right? Like, I'm not a dumb guy. You know, I could get a dim intuition about practically anything if an expert sits down and talks to me about it for 15 minutes. You know, I, I'll I'll um I'll 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 pass your info along to my friends, uh, uh, the both and podcast guys, mm. Um, mm-hmm. because if there's a, anyone, Jared James and uh, and Jason, um, because if there's anyone that I would think might be able to do that, it would probably be them, uh, Jason Snyder, um, but I couldn't do it myself, and I'm you know like I said, I'm sort of like looking at it from the outside going, eh, I don't really want to be part of that. Well, I mean, you know, think of good old-fashioned postmodernism, right? Postmodernism goes through a really messy phase, but when all is said and done, it boils down to a few relatively simple things which are, you know, hard to really apply, but pretty simple to conceptualize. You know, everybody has their own perspective on the situation and history is made by the victors, is you know, 30 or 50% of the useful stuff inside of postmodernism. But actually applying those relatively simple truths case by case by case by case to Western society turns out to produce a whole bunch of really dramatic stuff. You know, all the stuff about the carceral state or, um, uh, you know, the Deleuze and Guattari stuff about, and, you know, nonlinear history and all the rest of that. Like, there's a bunch of really chunky, useful work that comes out of taking those relatively simple truths and then applying them in a rigorous fashion. So it might be that the metamodernists are in the messy phase where they haven't abstracted out back far enough to get to the simple truths. But at some point, you know, there ought to be a sheet of A4 that is metamodernism in a nutshell, and it ought to be something that you can put in front of any person that can read the Guardian newspaper and have them understand 30 or 50% of the academic discourse. Right, you know, you there needs to be a version of that story which works for people that are not going to devote their lives to understanding it. Because if mm. there isn't a version of that story, what you kind of have is an academic cult, mm. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you get that kind of stuff quite frequently. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the the other bit of this that I think it's worth connecting because we kind of. We sort of went down two tracks, but it wasn't clear that there's a connection point between them. Is this? Yeah. Um, while you are resident in a monkey suit, there are some questions about what is moral, right? What's right and what's wrong. And generally speaking, there is an aspect of tantric practice, praxis, uh, which is you know represented by the idea of absolute unconditioned freedom. You could do what you damn well like. Right. Step one. Mm-hmm. Then step two, you see that the vast majority of tantric practice is extremely tightly confined by vows that practitioners are made to take before anybody will teach them anything. Make sense? Yeah, sure. So a lot of that is being done 
to try and you know minimize the amount of damage done by tantric madmen. Right? Mm-hmm. Practices will unhinge a relatively large number of people that do them for short periods. Some of those people will get unhinged and they'll stay unhinged. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Western world, because people do not take oaths seriously, it becomes very, very hard to protect them from tantra. Right? If somebody will sit down and swear a binding oath and the damn oath will stick, they will treat it as an absolute vow and they will never break it, you can obligate people to behave in a fairly reasonable way and then you can teach them absolute freedom knowing that they're not going to go and chew the people around them. But if you cannot make the vows stick, huge amounts of the material just can't be taught safely. And this is where we get into these questions of right action. Like, if we don't take the moral frameworks of Asia and import them along with the technologies of absolute freedom, it's going to be extraordinarily messy, right? And, you know, I think that this is why it's very important that we put morality back into the picture in a really serious way when we're talking about enlightenment, spirituality, right livelihood, and the rest of these concepts. Mm. It's incredibly important that we put morality right back in the center of that picture because the interface between freedom and responsibility is morality. Like, although my guru... You know, although the lifestyle that came out of dealing with my guru could be thought of as being largely karma yoga, I don't really think of it as being karma yoga, right? I think it's probably what karma yoga always was, but it wasn't taught to me as this is karma yoga. It was taught to me as don't be an asshole. The fundamental teaching. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Like, oh, you know, totally. <laughs> you know, the world is filled with people that need things. You're a really capable guy. You know, you shouldn't be working in your own self-interest. As long as you have a place to sleep, you should be working for other people, right? You know, okay, I've had to modify that because I wasn't getting anything done when I was applying, you know, when I interpreted that in the way that I initially interpreted it, all my work was open source and I generally worked for free. And this has turned out to be enormously limiting of my effectiveness. So 15 years in, Elon Musk is blazing a trail across the sky. I'm like, okay, that guy has this right and I have this wrong. I'm going to be able to help a lot more people if I work with the filthy, grimy machinery of capitalism rather than trying to work outside of it. And I'm five years into that retooling. You know, I made it as far as CEO. My company has launched a product. You know, we raise some more money. We get some more objects online. We begin to make some real progress. Maybe that turns into an economic engine that gives me a platform to help people from. You know, and I'm, I'm very clear about this. I had it wrong. You know, this business thing, this business thing turns out to be a thing that you may have to do if you want to really help people. It may be right action to accumulate wealth and resources and then use them on behalf of other people. Whereas if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I would have said, you're just becoming part of the problem. Why would you do that? Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not that I'm laying down a moral framework here and saying people have, you know, like this is the right thing. What I'm saying is the rigorous moral analysis of our actions so that we know why we think that what we are doing is right or wrong. And you need a tolerance because if you're going to look at yourself really clearly, you will discover a lot of what you're doing is wrong and you won't have the resources to change, not immediately anyway. You know, if you're going to have the rigorous analysis, you also need a lot of acceptance of your own imperfection. Mm. It's not even really imperfection. It's just it's just limitedness, right? A two-meter mm. high human requires a stepladder to reach the ceiling. That's not because the human is imperfect. It's because the human is human. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? 
Sure. Right? So, you know, you need this pairing of both the rigorous moral analysis and the acceptance of the human condition simultaneously. But I don't see that discourse at anything like the necessary volume to produce right action in the age of extinction. Mm. That makes good sense. Um, I do see things kind of turning in that direction, at least in some communities. Certainly, there's something coming out of the Buddhist modernism that's breaking out of sort of the self-infatuated approach to meditation. And I think that's, you know, that's a good step in the right direction toward what you're saying. But, um, Buddhist but, I, modernism? but I hear you. Buddhist, Buddhist modernism. modernism. Yeah, Buddhist. I and mean, this is sort of the, the term that academics use to describe the way that sort of modern philosophy and culture and, and Buddhist Buddhism have kind of merged together, like sort of describes the way that, you know, for instance, you know, um, it seems like science validates Buddhism and Buddhism validates science. And, um, you know, that, that meditation is a sort of individual path of self-improvement and, uh, you know, any number of these kind of type of beliefs where the modern kind of modern mindset and Buddhism start to kind of merge into this sort of weird, uh, you know, <laughs> amalgamation. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's totally. probably the same in the yoga, in the, you know, popular yogic tradition, yeah. yogic modernism. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're pointing at. I mean, to be honest, that stuff is a bit mysterious to me. Like, you know, I, I, because again, it's the monkey suit thing, right? Like, to me, science, generally speaking, operates in the domain of monkey suit. Like, you know, whatever absolute consciousness is, it clearly is thought to pervade many domains of experience of which the physical world is only one. And a bunch of those domains of experience operate completely differently, like dream realities. Right? Mm -hmm. From the perspective of the monkey suit, okay, here you wear a monkey suit, there you wear a dream body. But at the end of the day, there is consciousness within a vehicle of experience. So I get very confused and surprised when people expect enlightenment to politely fit inside of the game. Because mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's like you can't really express the rules of chess inside of the game of chess because the rules are at one level and the game is at another level. You know, like it's like wandering around inside of a game of Dungeons and Dragons and finding a bunch of orcs who are playing like, you know, uh, you know, um, I don't know, briefcases and bozos, wherever it be. Like, the idea that science is going to neatly explain enlightenment seems like a kind of level confusion and expecting mm -hmm. a kind of self-referentiality that I wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. um, one exception to that might be mathematics, and math is very confusing and frightening. That's a, that's a mm -hmm. whole other kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, both the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, but also is mathematics something that applies across all planes of experience or only this one? You know, I don't know if anybody's ever done algebra on the astral plane, but, you know, like, does it work the same way it does here? I don't know. Is math objectively true across all dimensions or not? Um, and that's actually quite an important question to me because very deep things about the nature of construction, the construction of the universe and of human experience hinge on whether math is universal across all planes of experience or whether math is particular to this plane of experience. 
Uh, and I, you know, like, it's not like we had enough math back in the Mahasiddha period. You know, that's just not a question anybody thought of asking. But philosophically, given how objective mathematics appears to be, um, it's a very close peer to the Enlightenment tradition. Right? It's objective in the same way that Enlightenment should be objective. And I just don't think there's been nearly enough contact between the philosophers of mathematics and the philosophers of Enlightenment to really start asking the hard questions about what is objectivity and what is truth. That's interesting. Yeah, this sort of reminds me a little of Shinzen Young and his work, because he's been sort of obsessed with that um, How is he? interface. Yeah, he has. He's um, That's been his sort of life's work, is to kind of explore mathematics and, and uh, meditation and science is together. He a, is he a mathematician by training? Uh, self-taught. He started off in the Asian religion um, PhD and then did, did the sort of hardcore meditation thing and, mm. and sort of realized he needed to to kind of understand uh, the Western Enlightenment and the Eastern Enlightenment, right, right, right. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, he, 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 you know, I, I, I know very little about the subject, but I, I imagine you and he could probably wrap on that at a at a high level. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of relatively newly coming to that. Uh, I, I share an apartment in London with a mathematician, um, mm. so there's been a fair amount of discussion of this stuff, and uh, weird enough, what kicked this off for me was an XKCD cartoon. Um, where some some teacher is talking about how you know you can't give timeless and unchanging truth to kids, you know you're just teaching them what we currently know, and in the background a math teacher is just kind of politely coughing, <laughs> and yeah, that was this point of like, yeah, actually this mathematics stuff is a different category of truth, you know how does that relate to the rest of the things that we know? Hmm, and that was you know that was the point where the little light comes on like okay, what is that? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have a little bookmark on that of like, okay, this is interesting, this is important, but I haven't made any progress on it yet. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I mean, the the little bit I remember Shinzen talking about was the sort of the origin of zero, you know, which has its roots in India and is sort of you know is the symbol for for emptiness. You know, that's that's a pretty profound connection. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you don't get you don't get modern math without zero. You don't get any. No, oh, right. <laughs> You can't go. You can't go anywhere without zero except uh, yeah. whole numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Gre- Greeks and their great love of integers and rational numbers. You know, they, <laughs> I, I read recently that there was one, one of the Greek philosophers or mathematicians um, was poisoned because he was going to go public with um, the fact that if you have a one by one uh, right angle triangle, the hypotenuse is not a rational number. Mm. You know, this this was the great kind of apocalyptic secret of Greek math was that <laughs> you know root two wasn't rational because it broke all the stuff they wanted to talk about in terms of the harmonies and symmetries of the universe. Yeah, everything being perfectly rational. You know, the the x mm. is one and the y is one, but the hypotenuse is square root of two was like a real problem. Um, and it was a problem that you could just stumble into pretty easily. And then after that, you know, like all of a sudden you knew a secret that people were willing to kill for. Very strange. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, this is, I, I don't know if you've come across the Mandelbrot set, right? You've seen the image. Yes. Right. So the math behind the Mandelbrot set is really not much more complicated than multiplication. 
right? You take numbers and you multiply them by each other over and over and over and over again. And at the end of that, you either get infinity or the number gets tinier and tinier and tinier and tinier. Like if you multiply a half by a half by a half by a half, it gets very small. If you multiply two by two by two by two, it gets very big. And the Mandelbrot set is just a graph of whether the number gets really small or really big for a particular kind of numbers, right? It's a very primitive question that you would think would have an answer that would be pretty well behaved, and it turns out to be exceptionally badly behaved and generates an infinite sea of complexity. And that thing where a really, really simple piece of math generates an infinite sea of complexity and not unstructured randomness but complexity, you know, why? Where does that come from? How does that work? What can we learn from that? Um, and it, you know, this again is a thing where you know there's a ton of confusion. Like, you know, yogis are often described as having got like infinite wisdom or infinite knowledge or you know total consciousness, whatever it is. Um, and then the question is, well, you know, well, what does that really mean? And you know, it, it's not as if the kind of knowledge that yogis are masters of is the kind of knowledge that tells you why the Mandelbrot set is the way it is. That's right. Right. And, you know, we've got such poor ways of describing what it is that is absolute about the Enlightenment experience versus how everything else in the universe fits together around it. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.